Thanks for tuning in to today's Horsewoman podcast. Our show explores women in the horse industry as they share their dreams, challenges, successes. What drives these women? Well, let's find out. I'm Rose Cushing with today's Horsewoman, and we're here today with Stacy Pearsall in Harleyville, South Carolina at Low Country Acres. And Stacy is an amazing horsewoman and has so many more things about her, so we're all excited to learn all about you. So tell me first how you got involved with horses. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast, and I'm really, really excited because I love everything horses. Very, very horse obsessed. I would say that my mother is the one who uh, first introduced me to horses and my passion for them. And we lived on a farm in just uh, over the river from South Dakota in Iowa, small, small town, and had Arabian horses. That's really where it came from. The funny thing is my mom was the one who loved Arabians, and I learned that I probably wasn't best suited for them. Right. <laughs> but I've been, even, even after joining the service, I've been involved with horses. No matter where I went in the world, I always found a place uh, that would allow me to muck stalls and um, clean tack and just be around them mm -hmm. and, and do some riding. That's that's really cool. So now with Low Country Acres, tell me what you're doing with horses. I found out about this wonderful draft horse breed when I was stationed in the United Kingdom, and it was well in in Belgium they're known as the Belgian uh, draft horse, Belgische Trekpard, Brabanter, Barbacone. There's a number of different names. Uh, we in the United States know them as Brabants. I fell in love with their personality, their easygoing uh, abilities, and just their versatility. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, if I could ever have one of these gems in my life, I will. When I finally retired from service, I, can, I continued working in, in the photographic field. And my husband and I lived in town. I had a thoroughbred sort of mutt. I don't know what he is. He's walking <laughs> behind us right now. If you hear his hoofbeats. And he kind of came into my life accidentally, and I didn't have any room for any other horse. Now, I was hanging out with my sister, also a horsewoman, and we were doing our birthday vacation together, our annual birthday vacation. And I came across a horse ad, and it was for a Brabant mare, and she was available. And these in the U.S. Mm -hmm. are so rare, they, they very rarely come across uh, sales. And they, if they do, are, if they are for sale, they don't last long. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh. So my sister and I are in Costa Rica and I, I reach out to the gal who's selling her. And I'm like, hey, is she still available on the wild chance? And she said, yes, but I have very, a lot of interested parties. And I'm like, don't sell it, please. I still have to talk to my husband. Right. Um, so anyway, I was the lucky recipient of this beautiful Vermont mare. I boarded her for a while. And then at the same time, my husband and I had bought land outside of Charleston and we hadn't developed it yet. And that kind of put the urge and urgency uh, yeah. to kind of get our property fenced and have a barn put in. And, and that took a, a couple of years to get it together. We moved in a year ago and I imported uh, another horse from Belgium and it's just sprouted up like crazy. 
that's amazing. The place is absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So the, the Brabants is a breed that I'm not familiar with at all. So mm -hmm. that's one thing that intrigued me. And um, you, we were talking earlier about the colors. So tell us a little bit about that. There are recognized colors in the Brabant breed. The, those are bay, chestnut, black, any roaning of those uh, colors. Also accepted are gray, but those are quite rare. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, my stud colt who's coming to is one of those rare gray colors. Yeah, he's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. So I know you're excited about the potential to be breeding him. Yes, and, and there are so few gray Brabants in the world that that those of us who have them talk amongst ourselves about uh, potential for, for growing the gray color in the breed and making sure that this color doesn't go extinct. It is on the verge of doing so right now. Well, that's wonderful that you're saving this color because it's a beautiful, beautiful color and beautiful horses. Now, what are the, the Brabants suited for? What kind of disciplines do they do best besides obviously a workhorse? <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of folks um, cross the imported Belgians out with um, Pertrons or Suffolk Punch or any number of, of, of breeds because they're so versatile and for their demeanor really. Mm -hmm. They're great in harness, um, whether you're doing leisure driving or you're doing hard field work, timber work. But I've seen them used in vaulting mm -hmm. and dressage, mm -hmm. pleasure riding, and some people just like to have them as pets in their, in their backyard because they're so in your pocket sweet. Oh, I can totally see that. I would love to have one for sure. Cushing Media is proud to present our first event for 2021, our Everything Equine Expo, a tribute to horsewomen. April 16th through 18th at the Lake Waccamaw Equestrian Center, Bill Thompson Lane, Lake Waccamaw, North Carolina. Our colt starting will feature six of the finest cowgirls in the business. Even the horses for colt starting will be fillies and provided by Lost Creek Cattle Company of Tennessee. Professional demos, trail challenge, colt starting, and equestrian entertainment show on Saturday night. Tickets available online or at the gate for just $30 for the entire weekend, including all events, or $15 per day. Follow us on Facebook at Everything Equine Expo, a Cushing Media production. So let's talk a little bit more now about you. Okay. So you were in the military. Yes. So tell me a little about that. Well, the military is a family business. Mm -hmm. um, both sides of my family, I've had folks who served. My dad was in the Navy. His father was Army National Guard and so on. And then my mother's father was a, um, in the Navy, Pearl Harbor survivor. My great-grandfather was a World War I um, veteran of um, the war uh, on the, in the trenches in France. Right. And my sister was the first female A-10 crew chief in Air Force history. Wow. So there were some pretty big shoes to step into. Yeah. <laughs> or boots in this case. I knew I wanted to go into something in the arts, and I called my uncle who worked assignments down at Lackland Air Force Base, and he was giving airmen their assignments, and he said, listen, you can have one of three jobs that are artistic. You could be uh, a videographer, a graphics designer, or a photographer. And being 17, mm -hmm. young and impatient, I picked whichever one opened up first, and that was photography. 
for four years, I worked in the U-2 spy plane program mm -hmm. doing intelligence, which seems like an oxymoron in the military. Um, <laughs> yeah, insert laugh. Um, but, and then I knew I wanted to join the, the combat camera unit, which was located in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh -huh. I knew I wanted to be in, in combat camera at Charleston, South Carolina, but they were so such small and coveted limited positions that um, I didn't think that I would be accepted given I had no experience. And it was only open up to women in the mid 90s. Uh -huh. So there were, you know, women were still trying to make their mark. Uh -huh. Nonetheless, I submitted a portfolio, did some groveling and got the position. Awesome. July 2001. I reported to Charleston in January of 2002. So between that time, 9-11 happened and, the, and our, our country went from a peacetime nation to a country at war on multiple fronts. And I had to learn a lot really quick. Yeah. I was just thinking no experience wouldn't matter because nobody would have had that experience. Many, actually, because there were operations happening on a smaller scale, there was Haiti, um, Bosnia. Mm -hmm. That's true. Or, you know, some, some of the smaller things, people did have combat experience, which was, and any ounce was more than what I had, which was zero. And at, at any rate, I had really great mentors. They got me up to speed that, that first year was really spent doing a lot of training. I went to survival school and um, became an air crew member, learned how to take pictures from the air, and then learned how to speak army and um, do close quarters combat training and all the good gun stuff. And, and then I was on my first combat deployment by 2003. My son was in the army. He retired about four years ago and he taught army combatives. Okay. And now he teaches them to the federal agencies. Uh -huh. <laughs> so up in Virginia. He has a whole language of its own. Oh, I know. I, I, I can hardly... I won't, I won't tire you with no, Well, he I'm has sure to tra he, I'm sure translate. He, <laughs> he does. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, to be an, a combat photographer, tell me a little bit about that job. Well... Were you doing, like, like um, secret stuff or trying <laughs> to just give them general ideas of what was down there or all of it? Well, first and foremost, uh, the job of a combat photographer is to document what's happening downrange so that the battlefield commanders and the Joint joint Chiefs of Staff, the President all have, the Secretary of Defense all have a first-hand view of what's happening in the battle space and to make informed decisions. The secondary is those those images are used to push to wire services to keep the general public um, in the know. Mm -hmm. And any images that I produced while in Iraq or wherever uh, were, pub were in our public domain, mm -hmm. so the American people own them. That said, there was an aspect of the photography that I did that is for official use only, some right. of it's classified secret or above, and those images like those that are being released now from Vietnam will mm -hmm. be in, have an embargo for at least 50 years. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely. Was it a, an adrenaline rush? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that goes with, with being in combat. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of challenges, I think, you know, being a woman mm -hmm. with infantry, mm -hmm. not necessarily common. I think it's becoming more and more um, well, I shouldn't even say that, but as women become combat commanders, as they become infantrymen, infantry women, um, and they take leadership roles, that's going to become much more common. At the time, however, women, there was still an embargo uh, of women in combat roles. And people always ask me, well, how are you on the front lines? And I was like, well, 
women were not allowed to be assigned to combat units, but we were allowed to be in support of combat mm -hmm. units. And there was no defining where that boundary was drawn. Sure. So there were women in intelligence uh, on the ground doing intelligence gathering, uh, driving trucks, um, doing police work, combat photographers, and, and the list goes on. So there were women out there, are women out there doing a job on the front line. And it just so happens that um, my job was to document the war. Hey y'all, this is Lonnie from Mule City Specialty Feeds located in Benson, North Carolina. It's almost springtime. Is your horse blooming? Does your horse have a shiny coat and healthy hooves? How much extra time and money are you spending mixing supplements in the feed room when you could be enjoying your horse in the arena or out on the trail? Then look no further. Mule City Specialty Feeds has a line of equine feeds that delivers maximum nutrition. From your performance horse to your weekend trail horse, our line of Maximum Nutrition Equine Feeds offers five different complete balanced formulas that will take you out of the feed room and into the saddle. In addition to equine feeds, we also offer complete feeds for your barnyard pets and livestock. For more details, visit our website at mulecity.com, follow us on Facebook, or give us a call at 1-800-587-9229. And don't forget, Mule City delivers. Now, do you want to talk about all of the things that happened then? Are you comfortable talking about that or no? Because I'm, I'm easy either way. Um, well, I think the, the short of it is when you have multiple deployments you're, you're, and you're on the front lines and you're working with the infantry, the chances of you getting hurt are pretty high. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, uh, for me, mm -hmm. I was hit by an improvised explosive device in... Um, the winter of 2004, at the very tail end of that combat deployment, and I sustained a traumatic brain injury and a cervical spine trauma. I blew my right eardrum out and came home, recuperated, volunteered to go back to combat camera, and did a, a deployment to the Horn of Africa. Got married, went to um, do evacuations based out of Greece, doing evacuations out of Lebanon. Came home from that, and then I went to Iraq again and was wounded a second time. I could not recuperate from that, and I was medically retired. Right. So thank you for your service to yeah. your country and everything you've gone through. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about photography. I understand that you had a, a business in Charleston. Yes. When I was on a temporary medical retirement from the military, they gave me two years to see if I would recuperate. Right. But, um, so I was hoping upon hope that I could get back to the military. That was always the goal. When I stepped out of the uniform, another veteran, fellow veteran by the name of Jack Alterman, had the Charleston Center for Photography. It was a studio, his professional photography business, but also offering educational um, classes for enthusiasts, hobbyists, and professionals. He said, hey, I need somebody to help me run the school end of things. And I was like, all right, cool. It meant to be a part-time thing because I was still going to the hospital and getting, going through therapy and blah, blah, blah. Well, it turned out to be more of a full-time job. And then Jack was like, hey, I'm ready to retire. Do you, do you want to take it over? And, and I said, sure. I had no business background. I had no, other than you know managing subordinates in the military, had no sort of management skills. I was writing curriculum and doing all of these things, just learning on the fly. It was, um, yeah, like drinking from a, a, a fire hydrant. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> But what was great 
I took over the business in 2008, right when the economy crashed. Oh, wow. Um, so you learned a lot fast. It had to. <laughs> mm -hmm. I had to. And, you know, it was a struggle just to keep it in the black. I would say that I would be boasting if I said we did. We were just lucky not to go into excessive debt. Mm -hmm. So we sustained it. We were supplementing public school, our programs that were being cut. Um, and it was just, it was nice being able to give keep arts alive during such a dark time mm -hmm. people looked at art as um not necessarily frivolous but an expense they couldn't afford yeah and kind so, of a luxury yeah a yeah, luxury item so we tried to keep our costs low and and continue to offer educational classes because i think people art is something that people need in order to just express themselves and kind of get rid of that negative energy and i was glad that we could do that at the same time, I had started doing the Veterans Portrait Project. Mm -hmm. So I was taking portraits of my fellow veterans um, for free, <laughs> which is nuts. Um, but it was my gift to veterans. Mm -hmm. And it was a way to educate myself about the veteran community because people looked at me and looked past me as a veteran. They didn't acknowledge the fact that as a woman, being young, I was 28 at the time, being young, that I wasn't what came to people's minds when they thought of the word veteran. Absolutely, absolutely. And I feel like every veteran has their history and their story and their background contributes to um, the fabric of the military. Each and every one of them are th a thread mm -hmm. that, that weaves this, this tapestry. And through the Veterans Portrait Project, I could help clear the picture up. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And it, I, I, at the time, had fallen into a very dark depression because the military said, we don't need you anymore. That temporary retirement time frame ran out. They said, we're going to retire you permanently. You're not going to spontaneously get better. My identity had literally gone down the tubes. I always looked at myself as a combat photographer. I was 17 when I enlisted. I knew no other right. aspect of my life. And you kind of felt like it was an expectation given your family history, I'm sure. Uh, I think to some extent. Um, I. I think that they they looked at it like you you've done your four years that sure. was you know box checked everything past that was gravy you know and right. for me I I never felt any pressure from my family in that regard and I will say that f for me it was all of my own expectations mm -hmm. I had planned to stay the the twenty years and retire like any other retiree from the military and be in in E nine achieve to accomplish all the things that a woman would want to accomplish and break the glass ceiling and all that jazz and it just didn't happen and I had lost friends in combat and I was still grieving I never had a chance to process that part I was in a lot of pain and I was thinking about it wasn't going to spontaneously get better suddenly this was my reality yeah on my horses I, could, I wasn't allowed to ride my horses anymore I couldn't run and I said well what is left in my life they even told me I couldn't take pictures anymore because I couldn't stand for long durations of time or lift anything over five pounds. And I really believe that. So for a while, I was kind of just going to therapy, coming home, laying on the couch and thinking there's nothing left in my life. And um, I met a veteran by the name of Mickey Dorsey, World War II veteran who really changed my outlook. And that's when the Veterans Portrait Project started. And I set this goal that I would photograph veterans in every state, mm -hmm. thinking that would be a lifetime goal. Suddenly the camera was back in my hands. I wasn't concentrating on the pain. And I said, to heck with what the doctors say, I am going to enjoy my horses. So instead of riding, I learned to um, 
to do teamster stuff. I started driving instead of riding, um, doing a lot more ground and positive training, positive reinforcement training, and you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, it really changed my thought thought process. And then I got a service dog. I reached every state uh, on Veterans Day in 2019. So that that goal is met. I'm awesome. still doing the project. Um, I have my farm now, Low Country Acres, and I am just really loving life. That's awesome. We can't be successful without your donations as our partners. Every event that Cushing Media Productions produce donates $1 from ticket sales to Cushing Equestrian Fund. Join us, Cushing Equestrian Fund, your trusted source in an emergency. Follow us on Facebook, and you can donate on our website, www.cushingmedia.net. So with your Veterans Project, did you focus on veterans in general or veterans that had been hurt, or was there any, did it matter? It doesn't matter if you served a year and got out of the service, um, or you served the 20 years or 20 plus years. For me, I think, you know, some, some folks, let's use Vietnam for example, they were drafted and they did two years and then they got out. Their, their service isn't any less remarkable Absolutely. than somebody who volunteered and enlisted and stayed or was commissioned and stayed 25 years. Right. So, and again, it comes down to each and every veteran has an incredible contribution to the military as a whole. Mm -hmm. We are made up of the sum of our parts. Absolutely. Each part is important. Are the portraits somewhere people can see them, or are they personal things that the folks have? Veterans can opt to have their pictures shared at veteransportraitproject.com, mm -hmm. or they can opt out and keep it private. So uh, the majority of the veterans say, yeah, sure, you can show it off. Now you can go to the National Veterans Memorial Museum and see a handful of them in Columbus, Ohio. Right. You can go to the Women in Military Service Memorial for America at Arlington National Cemetery and see some of the ladies there. Nice. Uh, and I have exhibitions in, in other locations. But if you want to see them online, veteransportraitproject.com is the place to do it. All right. Now, do you still teach photography on any level? I do. I am a Nikon ambassador, and I do uh, photography education. I have a, a podcast called Everything Stacy. I talk about horses and cameras and photography and all that jazz. Whatever is on my mind, honestly, that mm -hmm. day. And um, it's a lot of fun. But I, I do teach photography classes We've been doing a lot of Zoom lately because yeah. of the COVID situation, but I do, I do teach in person when we're not under the restrictions. Very nice. Was there, as a woman in the horse industry, what advice would you give to young women as how they could leave their mark on the industry? And, and what, what advice just to be successful? Well, given, given I'm only coming back to the horse industry and um, you know, still trying to find my place in my role and things, I, I think the one thing I'd have to say is just stay true to what you want. There is a lot of different ways to skin a cat, as they say, and making sure that you keep an open mind to embracing other thoughts and ideas, um, but also making sure that you drown out the noise, too, because mm -hmm. there's always going to be people who have opinions, and I think most especially in the horse industry. Um, and being able to filter that is um, self-preservation, very, very important. Very much. <laughs> um, but I think women uh, overall, I think, support each other. 
um, and to continue to support each other. So um, I always have the mentality, and I suppose this comes from my military days, is to give it back as freely as I got it. Mm -hmm. And so if my neighbor calls me and says, hey, I got a filly I'm having problems with, can you come take a look at it? I'll, I'll do it, drop what I can and do it. Um, you never know what manifests from those experiences. Absolutely. It may be something that you've never seen and um, it gives you an opportunity to, to learn something new or learn a new aspect of training and apply that to your programs. And um, I, I find that there's no experience that doesn't end up being beneficial. Absolutely. So what's left on your bucket list to achieve? Oh goodness. I, I feel like I'm living the dream right now already. I think I would like to have this very small, um, you know, very small breed become more popular here in America. Uh, so far as I know, there are documented less than 55 in North, in North America. I think in all of America, if I were to count Central and South America, I think it's probably less, less than 100. Wow. Uh, I would like to see that number a little bigger and to, to keep this breed alive. With the diminishing, uh, with the diminishing carriage industries, mm -hmm. the, the impact of COVID on tourism, um, so many carriage companies are closing, uh, and many people are, are you know, using tractors and not using horsepower. Although I will say there's been a resurgence in, in horsepower for green farming, but um, I, I want to keep the draft breed uh, open in people's minds because they are versatile, they're sweet. And, and many people say, they talk to themselves out of it. They say, oh, drafts are more expensive to, to feed and to keep, and that's not the case. I say my thoroughbred mix mm -hmm. eats the same, if not more, than my stallion that, that's a draft. Right. So, um, you know, there's a lot of considerations. and But anyway, if I had a, a, one more bucket list to, to check, I would like to have at least four, four more imported horses here in the U.S. to help propagate the breed. Very good. Well, thank you for spending time with me this morning. I really enjoyed getting to know you some and look forward to our continued friendship. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank it you. Great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Our souls wander in similar places. Even though we may not know each other, we touch the same wind, we walk under the same sky, and our hearts wander in the same dreams. We are one, women just like you and me. Thank you for listening.